All right, so in the first half of chapter 10, Jesus gave us a metaphor about shepherding. And so in that metaphor, he talked about several things. He talked about a sheepfold. He talked about thieves and robbers. He talked about, thank God, the good shepherd. He also talked about his sheep, and then he talked about other sheep. And as we made our way through the text last week, I shared with you the interpretation of the metaphor. And so by way of quick review, we're gonna go through it um, because it's good to be reminded, um, but also some of you weren't here last week. And so the sheepfold was Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who at the time of Jesus were rightfully under the law of Moses. The law of Moses, a good thing. The holy law that God gave to his servant Moses on Mount Sinai. And since the children of Israel at that time were living under the dispensation of the law, it was good and right for them to be under the law at that time in the Old Testament. Number two, the thieves and robbers were the religious leaders. These are the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day who came on the scene and they hijacked the faith of their fathers. What did they do specifically? They added legalistic man-made rules. They came up with a false legalistic religious system and, and... Basically, what they did is they elevated man-made rules, religious rules, to have equal authority, sometimes more authority, than the Word of God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely ticked Jesus off. If you don't believe me, read Matthew 23 later. And so like a yoke, they put their man-made rules on the necks of the Jews, and the Jews languished under this legalistic burden, and they treated the people under their care, the scribes and Pharisees. They treated people like you and I with harshness and cruelty. That's the thieves and robbers. The good shepherd, praise God he came, is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who, yeah, he came for the whole world, but initially, you need to know, he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he went to the sheepfold of Israel, and he gave his unique call to his sheep. And he saved his sheep, and he fed his sheep, and he strengthened his sheep, and he protected his sheep from the evil one. And in many cases, he healed physically his sheep, and they followed him. And then finally, or not finally, but then the the second from the bottom, you have the sheep, and in the context, that's the Jewish converts. And it's those Jews who accepted Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah and their Savior and their Lord. And not only did Jesus lead his sheep away from the man-made legalism of the day, you need to know that he also led them out of the old covenant, God's old covenant. And he led them into God's new covenant. Why? Because God was doing a new, th- <clears throat> a new thing. Read the book of Hebrews. And so he led them out. And the sheep recognized his voice and they ran at the good shepherd and they uh, ran right into the church of Jerusalem, multiplied thousands of Jewish converts to Jesus Christ in the last 2,000 years, into other churches as well. What does the word church mean? Ecclesia, the called out ones. Is it only made of Jews? No, praise God, now for the last one, the other sheep, and that's most of us, 
the Gentile converts. Why? Why Gentiles? For God so loved, help me out, the whole world, that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And so since Pentecost, the day of Pentecost when the church was born, the universal church, the big C church, it's made up of converted Jews and Gentiles who are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so that's basically last week in a nutshell. Now we're getting ready to go from verse 21 to verse 22. But apparently, a couple of months have passed in between these two verses. So I want you to get the time frame of John chapter 10. And so in verses 1 through 21, which we covered last week, that took place sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles. But now this week, in verses 22 through 42, it's gonna take place during the feast of what? Dedication, you guys see that? And so the Feast of Tabernacles, that takes place September, October timeframe. But the Feast of Dedication, that takes place in November, December timeframe. Okay, what does that mean? That means that we have now entered winter in our Bibles. Now, we live in Florida. We have two seasons, right? Yeah, hot and then not so hot. (laughs) But how many of you guys um, are really looking forward to November 1st through May 1st here in Florida? Yeah, it's gonna be great. Why? Because you're gonna get up and it's not gonna be 85 degrees, 100% humidity anymore. And some of you who are runners are gonna stop running on your treadmill and you're gonna start running outside again. And I'll wave at you when I run by you. But, but I just want to know, uh, real quick, um, how many of you like the cool weather? Raise your hand. I'm going to wait here. Yes, I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And now, how many of you like the hot weather? Oh, my goodness. We got a bunch of New York and New Jersey people who have moved to Florida. Yeah. Yankee fans. Hmm. Wow. Anyway, back to the message. (laughs) So we've now entered the winter season in our Bibles, and here's what you need to know. It's December in the Bible. In April, guess what's gonna happen? The Feast of Passover. And what is Jesus gonna do? The Good Shepherd's gonna lay down his life for the sheep. All right, so right now, if you're looking at John chapter 10, verse 22, just say amen so I know you're there. Again, what are we doing? We're going through the apostles' teaching, just like the first century church. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. All right, so we're gonna pick up our story. Jesus is walking under Solomon's colonnade. It's also known as Solomon's porch. And so if you go with us to Israel, I want you to um, understand, some of you have been with us to Israel, and so you're basically right now standing on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking west, and you're looking down the Kidron Valley, first century AD, um, toward the temple. And so you see the two big courts on either side of the temple, that's the court of the Gentiles or the outer court. You need need to know that Solomon's porch or Solomon's colonnade ran alongside um, the eastern side of the temple mount. It's a long covered hallway. And um, again, if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you up there. We know the exact spot. Listen, secular and sacred scholars all agree this is where the 
um, Jewish temple was. Now it's the Dome of the Rock. That's another story, okay? And so Jesus is up there. He's walking um, under the Solomon's Colonnade. And so the question is why? Well, it's said that it's winter. And so perhaps he didn't want to get out underneath the elements if it's a cold, rainy day, and that's why he's walking under this covered hallway. Why is he at the temple? Well, the Bible says, we just read it, that he was there for the Feast of Dedication. Does anybody in the room know what the Feast of, another name for the Feast of Dedication, anybody? Hanukkah, thank you for studying the Word of God and the implications of the Word of God. We're talking about Hanukkah. Now, most Christians don't know a lot about Hanukkah, so let me just help you understand why Jesus was there in Jerusalem. Regarding Hanukkah, Got Question says this. It's the Jewish festival of dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights. It's an eight-day festival, which typically falls in November or December on our calendar. And although this Jewish festival is not mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, which, by the way, is your Protestant Old Testament, is exactly the same, not mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, it is referenced in the Talmud. And so the reason that we don't read about Hanukkah in the Hebrew Bible, which is our Protestant Old Testament, the reason we don't read about it there is because Hanukkah celebrated an event that took place during the intertestamental period in between Malachi and Matthew, right? The Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. That's about 400 BC. The New Testament records historical events in the first century AD. Well, Hanukkah celebrates something that took place in between there. Hanukkah celebrates the rededication of the temple in 164 BC after the Jews defeated the enemy Syrian forces, which was part of the Seleucid Empire at that time, and their Hitler-like leader, Antiochus IV. And I'm so glad his nose fell off because this was a bad dude back in the day. And so Antiochus IV, he was also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, and the word Epiphanes means God manifest. He ruled over the Seleucid Empire. And so you guys remember Babylon, world domination. Persia, world domination. Greece, world domination. That's where we are now. Later on, it's the Romans. They're gonna dominate the world. We're, we're under Greek domination right now as I'm talking about this um, in the intertestamental period. And this guy, he rules the Seleucid Empire. It's a vast Greek state. You remember Alexander the Great? And then the four generals, this guy's um, from that whole line, and he rules from 175 to 164 BC, and he literally, Epiphanes here, literally thought he was a manifestation of Zeus, the false god Zeus, who is no god. He thought, I'm a manifestation of Zeus on the earth. So he conquers the Jews in 167 BC. He defiles the Jewish temple. How? He goes up to the brazen altar, and you know what he builds over the brazen altar? An altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. And then one of the most audacious acts that this guy did, he sacrificed pigs at the altar of Zeus in the Jewish temple. Now, how many of you guys know pigs are not kosher? Talk about a slap in the face to, to the Jews. He also outlawed the Bible. We're talking about the Old Testament, obviously. 
And any Jew who had a Bible was put to death. All right, so this sparked a Jewish rebellion that's called the Maccabean Revolt. It's led by Judas Maccabeus. He's also known as the Hammer and his brothers. And so under their leadership, the Jewish forces drove out Antiochus's forces from Jerusalem, from Judea, out of the land, and they reestablished Jewish rule in Jerusalem and Judea. And here's the good news. They also rededicated the temple to the true God. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who is he? Yahweh. Yahweh. They rededicated the temple to Yahweh, and that's what Hanukkah is all about. They did it in December of 164 BC. The word Hanukkah means dedication. And just like the ancient Jews during the time of the Maccabees celebrated for eight days, so current day Jews do the same. And so Hanukkah is also called the Feast of Lights. Due to the ancient practice of the Jews lighting candles in their home during this celebration, and so now that's turned into, during history, the lighting of the menorah. And so you have eight candles, one lit for each of the eight days of Hanukkah. You say, Pastor, there's nine candles up there. Well, the one in the middle is called the shamash. It's the helper candle. That's the candle that you use to light the other candles. So I said all that so you can understand what's going on in Jerusalem as Jesus is walking under Solomon's porch in the temple here in the first century AD. And so he's, what is, what is Jesus doing? I really think, now I could be wrong here, this is my opinion, but I really think because it's Hanukkah and he's at the temple, he's probably thinking about the Maccabean revolt and the implications of the Maccabean revolt on his ministry. So all that in mind, look now in verse 24. It says, so the Jews gathered around him. This is no doubt the religious leaders, the bullies. They gather around him and they said to him, how long are you gonna keep us in suspense? If you are, shout out the next two words, the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the title Christ, Christos in the Greek, the title Messiah, right? Mashiach in the Hebrew, that's a loaded title, especially around Hanukkah when the Jews are celebrating their victory over the enemy, all right? So 200 years prior to where we are in the Bible, right, it was the Greeks who dominated the Jews. Now, it's the Romans, in the pages of the New Testament that are dominating the Jews. And just like the Jews' ancestors, the Maccabees, etc., just like they wanted freedom from Antiochus IV, so now the Jews in Jesus' day, what do they want? They want freedom from Caesar. And who are they gonna look to? Well, the one that everybody's making a big to-do about. And so they come to Jesus, just tell us plainly. Okay, and so they wanted, they wanted deliverance from Rome, but there's a big problem, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ did not come to save them from the Romans. 
He came to save them from their sins. And that's the greatest enemy of all. He came to save not just the Jews, but the whole world from sin and death and hell. That's why he was there. They didn't get that. And so, listen, it's a loaded title. Messiah, Christ, it's a loaded title. And so even though Jesus privately, up to this point in our Bibles, even though he privately told the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that he's the Messiah, remember chapter four? Even though he privately told the man who was born blind and he healed him in John nine, that he was the Messiah. Even though he privately said, yeah, Peter, I am the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew chapter 16 and probably others privately, what you need to know is that up to this point, he avoided using that specific title, Christ, Messiah, he avoided using that publicly because of its militaristic connotations. He was not there to start a rebellion. He was not trying to be like Judas Maccabeus. And so in a few months, here's what's gonna happen. The feast of Passover is gonna occur. The good shepherd's gonna lay down his sheep. And at that time, Jesus is going to publicly proclaim before Caiaphas, the high priest, that he is indeed the Messiah. And you guys remember what Caiaphas does? Rip, blasphemy, and Jesus goes to the cross. It's all timed out very well. But up to this point, he primarily shows his messianic Identity through his signs and miracles. And so they come up to him, they surround him, court of, uh, I'm sorry, the Solomon's colonnade. Hey, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. Now, how did he primarily tell them? Next sentence. The, what's the word? That's his signs and miracles. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And so even though the religious leaders are trying to put the blame on him, even though they're trying to blame Jesus for not walking out on the court of, of Gentiles and shouting, I am Israel's Messiah, even though they're trying to put it on him, they're without excuse. You know why? Because of Jesus' miracles. Ladies and gentlemen, again, the prophet Isaiah, 8th century BC, said it very clearly. You're gonna know, Israel, when the Lord has come. You're gonna know when the Messiah comes. You know how you're gonna know? One of the ways? One of the ways is he's gonna open the eyes of the blind. And he's gonna do other miracles. And so these religious leaders knew that Jesus they knew it, everybody's talking about it. They knew that Jesus was opening the eyes of the blind. He just did it in the last chapter, chapter nine. And they knew he was doing many, many miracles so they should have fallen at his feet instead of ganging up on him here. But how many of you guys know it's all about pride? It's all about ego. It's all about that critical spirit. So we gotta be careful about that. We gotta be careful, by the way, of coming into a church and having an egotistical, prideful, critical attitude. If we don't like something that we don't see and we just like, what's that all about? Well, here's the question, what's your heart all about? You need to humble your heart before the Lord and realize it's not all about you. It's about what God is doing in a particular local church. I don't know where I am in my notes and why that came out of my mouth, but anyway. Yeah, verse 26, okay. 
So look at this, verse 26, Jesus says to them, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Woo! We have now hit, and thank God for Calvary Chapel's history for the last, whatever, 60 years of going verse by verse because we can't skip anything. So we have now hit the doctrine of divine election, which is taught throughout the New Testament. And so the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, you gotta come to grips with this. And so before you immediately think, Pastor Mike's a five-point Calvinist, I'm not, okay? Okay, but, but here's what you gotta understand. You gotta understand that before the foundation of the world, God elected those who would be part of his son's flock. It's there in the Bible. If you're a Bible believer, you gotta accept that, no matter what your theological position might be. Before the foundation of the world, God elected those who would be part of his son's flock, and since the religious leaders had reject the revelation that Jesus had given them about himself, they were outside that flock. Question, how can God be sovereign and yet humans be free? That's a big question, right? Been fighting about it for about 500 plus years in the Protestant church. Okay, what's the answer? The answer is, can you please get Norman Geisler's book called Chosen But Free? Because here's the thing, as we go verse by verse, I don't have time to take a deep dive into the profound truths of election and free will, um, but God, Dr. Geisler wrote a whole book on it, and I'll tell you basically what he taught, and we'll move on. So if you're listening right now, say amen here. Since God dwells in the eternal now. How many of you guys know God is infinite and not finite? He's eternal, not temporal. He's transcendent above the space-time material universe. He's not held within it like we are. And so because God dwells in the eternal now outside of time, his thoughts do not unfold in his mind sequentially like us. All right, I'm thinking a thought right now. That's a present thought. And now all of a sudden, now that's a past thought. And I'm gonna think thoughts tomorrow. That's a future, those are future thoughts. God doesn't think that way. God's infinite. God dwells in the eternal now. And since his attributes are one with his indivisible essence, you need to know that his knowledge, which is omniscient, he's all-knowing, and his determination are one in him. Now, now get this, it's logical, so get this. Therefore, there is no chronological priority regarding his omniscient knowledge of all things and his sovereign election of those who belong to him. There's no chronological priority. It's not like God looked down the portals of time to Mike Wiggins and, and somebody's witnessing to Mike Wiggins and God is like sweating and he's like, oh, come on, Mike, you can do it. Just accept me, man. Come on, come on, come on. And Mike, he says the sinner's prayer. He means it. Oh, praise the Lord. Woo. No, are you kidding me? Come on, we can do better than that. But here's what God also doesn't do. He doesn't say, all of you, I predestined you to be saved, whether you like it or not. And all of you, you're predestined to be damned, whether you like it or not. Are you kidding me? God doesn't do that either. Okay? And so, I'm sorry, all of you guys. <laughs> I just realized that, yeah. I think, I think right here is the line. Yeah, everybody move over. 
We're all gonna move over here to the right. Okay, and so here's what happens. From all eternity, God knowingly determines and determinately knows everything that happens, including all of our free acts. I'm emphasizing free acts, because you're free. So let me say that again. From all eternity, God dwells in the eternal now. God knowingly determines and determinately knows all things, including all our free acts. Is God sovereign? You answer me, yes or no? Are we free, yes or no? Yes, absolutely, we're free, and we're responsible for our choices, including the choice whether or not to accept or reject Jesus Christ. If you have no clue what I'm talking about right now, you are not predestined to understand. Oh, I'm just kidding there. I thought you guys would laugh at that one. No, no, we want you to understand, and so that's why we encourage you to get the book, okay? So, by the way, Dr. Norman Geisler is in heaven right now, but he started two seminaries, Southeastern, um, Southern Evangelical Seminary, where Frank Turek went, and then Veritas International University, and that's where I got my master's in theology. I know some of you guys were asking that question, so Veritas International University is where I got that. Now, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Please look at John chapter 10, verse 27. You guys ready for this? This is good, good, good news. This is like great news. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them temporal life if they behave. Is that what it says? (laughs) I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one is gonna snatch them out of my hand. That leads you to your next point. Ladies and gentlemen, the good shepherd gives eternal life and eternal security to his sheep. It doesn't get any clearer than this. If you belong to the good shepherd, you are never gonna perish. And never perish means never perish. Now, some of you have been born again Christians for a long time. And here's the thing, you still are wrestling and you're still doubting whether or not you're gonna make it to heaven. Please answer this. Who in the world is gonna snatch you from the omnipotent arms, the almighty arms of the Son of God? Who's gonna do that? It's time to stop being afraid. It's it's time to start believing the promises of God in the scriptures. But But here's the problem. The problem is there's a devil out there. And he's got a whole lot of demons. And what do they try to do? They try to bring us under condemnation. And they do a pretty good job at it. They've been doing it for a long, long time. And so you've heard this said a lot lot of times. When a devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of 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 his future, and you keep your eyes on Jesus. Okay? And so when the devil tries to bring you under condemnation, remind yourself of who you are in Christ. All right, so Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus. He said, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. All right, so what does it mean to be blessed with every spiritual blessing? He went on in the next section of his letter, all of it's breathed out by the Holy Spirit, by the way. And by the way, Peter calls Paul's writing scripture, 
That's another sermon for another time. But he went on to explain that those who belong to Christ, ladies and gentlemen, get this. This is good news. You gotta let it sink in. You gotta let it go from your heart to from your head to your heart. You are chosen if you belong to the Good Shepherd. From before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter one, there it is in black and white. You are adopted as his sons and daughters. You are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Of course salvation is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. And not only that, you're forgiven of all your sins. And my favorite, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, listen to this, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we take possession of it for the glory of God. So the Holy Spirit inside of you, listen to this. The Holy Spirit inside of you is the guarantee that you're going to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, if you belong to the Good Shepherd and you go to hell, God's a liar. And so it's time to stop being afraid. It's time to start believing in the promises of God because here's the problem. The devil's got some of you guys under so much condemnation and you're doubting whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. He's got you right where he wants you, why? Because you can't move from justification to sanctification because you're still over here freaking out about it. It's time to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord so that God can do a work through you. God wants to do a work through you. It's time to move on. And so, when the devil, not if, tries to bring you under condemnation, you gotta remind yourself who you are in Christ. You gotta remind yourself of what Jesus did for you. Look at what Paul said to the Romans. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's gonna bring a charge, an accusation against you? It's God who justifies. Who's gonna condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now this is my favorite part, confirmed in my heart by the Holy Spirit this week. Not that that means anything, because the word of God is, is what you gotta put your trust in. But here's what you need to know, and I get excited about it because I love it when God confirms his truth in my heart. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm gonna preach this because I know it's true. Okay, so what's true? If you are a born-again Christian, God has justified you. What does that mean? He has declared that you are righteous. You say, Pastor, does that mean my self-righteousness? My righteousness? Are you ready for this? No! <laughs> Christ's righteousness. If you belong to the Good Shepherd, hey, God has declared you are righteous and he has clothed you with the sparkling white robe of his son's perfect righteousness. And now when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's perfection. And that's what, the God, what God gave me peace about this week. That's what God does. He sees not your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. You're his son. You're his daughter. You belong to him. You have a place of privilege. Stop doubting. Start believing. Thank you, two people. <laughs> but who's gonna bring any charge against God's elect? The rhetorical answer is nobody. Who's gonna, because God justifies you, he declares you righteous. Well, who's gonna condemn you? If Christ Jesus died for you, and he was raised, and right now he's praying for you, 
Do you see that? It's all there in the text. Who in the world is gonna effectively charge or condemn you? The answer is nobody. So I'm gonna ask you again. Who's gonna snatch you from Christ's almighty arms? Nobody. Nobody. Paul put it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm clapping for that one because that's the word of God. That's the promise of God. Praise God. You belong to the good shepherd. You're born again. You're going to heaven. Get over it. (laughs) Accept it. It's not about what we do. It's about what he's done on the cross. And so, that is so good. But like the guy on TV says, wait, there's more. Look at John 10, verse 29. My father who has given them to me. By the way, I could preach on this too, but I can't, have, I don't have time, but if you are a sheep in Christ's flock, you're a gift to Jesus. Woo! I don't cry, right? But I just felt tears way in the back of my eyes. Man, you are a gift from the Father to Jesus. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you're a born-again Christian, not only are you in the almighty arms of the Son, you're also in the almighty arms of the Father. What does that mean? There's nobody, there's nothing that can ever break you out of that kind of power. You are doubly secure. You're doubly secure. Now, Jesus promises here, don't depend on our performance. Here's your next point, if you're taking notes. The eternal security of the true believer does not depend on their performance, but on Christ's promise. Now, by the way, let me, let me um, just make sure I don't allow anyone to misunderstand. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So right now, if you're here, and in the past, you repeated a poem after a pastor, but you're still sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you're still getting drunk every weekend, you don't even read the Bible, you need to go back and make sure you understood the gospel because, and what happened, because apparently nothing happened, and if any man's in Christ, any woman's in Christ, they're a new creation, old things have passed, behold, all things become new. Did everybody hear that? Please say that, if you, if you heard that, say amen. Okay, so, just make sure you got that. Now back to this point, which is so true. We cannot earn our salvation by our works. And just as true, we cannot keep our salvation by our works. Some people say, I'm saved by grace, but then I stay saved by my hustle. False gospel. No. No, the truth is, the eternal security of the true believer does not depend on their performance, but on Christ's promise. And so you say, where do good works come in? 
All right, let me give you all three verses that I quote every week. And the reason I quote them every week is because we have lots of visitors. And the American gospel is be a good boy or girl and you'll go to heaven maybe if there's a heaven. Say, so if you're listening, say amen here. Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are good works important, Pastor Mike? Yeah, they're important. If we're followers of Jesus, we need to implement his teachings in our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit, yeah. But never forget this. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. And if your gospel is Jesus plus works equals salvation, that is a false gospel. Read Galatians chapter one. Next point. The eternal security of the true believer does not depend on their feelings, but on Christ's faithfulness. Because here's what I know. What I know is there's gonna be days, man, when you're feeling great. There's gonna be days when you're sensing God's presence. There's gonna be days when you feel like you have faith to move mountains, and you're gonna, wow, this is amazing. Praise the Lord for those days. But here's what I also know <laughs> as we live in this fallen world, and we haven't had our coffee yet. There's gonna be days when you don't feel anything. And by the way, I'm speaking to somebody in here, you may not sense God's presence for weeks. You may not sense God's presence for a few months. And you're gonna say, Lord, are you there? Lord, why did that happen in my life? Please help me, I can barely keep my head above water. Child of God, hear this. Even when you're at your lowest low, you're still in the almighty arms of God and he's never gonna let you go. He's never gonna let you go. I don't care how you feel. I don't care if you have faith to move mountains. I don't care if you're barely keeping your head up. He is not going to let you go. You are his sheep and he loves you. He loves you. Why, because of my performance? No, because of his promise. Why, because of my feelings? No, because of his faithfulness. You say, why are you shouting? <laughs> I'm not mad, I'm just excited. <laughs> he said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Okay, and so, wow. Wow, <laughs> they asked for a plain answer regarding his Identity, he just gave them one, big time. And so this is another clear declaration of deity. It mirrors John eight fifty eight. right? You guys know this, before Abraham was, I am, I am. That's John eight fifty eight. Now he's saying, I and the Father are one. And so regarding Jesus' statement, Dr. Charles Ryrie, and so I never took Greek, I, I, actually I did took, I took Greek and I got a D. Okay, so I look at Greek scholars. The father and son are in perfect unity in their natures, 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 and actions. But the neuter form of one, I and the father are one, rules out the meaning that they are one person. See that? So important. Chuck Swindoll would agree. 
another Greek scholar. The neuter form that John uses indicates singleness in essence. Therefore, a more literal rendering would be, we, I and the Father, are one being. Okay, so the truth about God, my heart goes out to you because there's false teachings about this. The truth about God is this. There is one God. Can you please say one God? There's not three gods. That's paganism. That's polytheism. There's not three gods. There's one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, one essence, one nature. Now, do the religious leaders know Jesus was proclaiming to be God? Yeah, they wanted to kill him for it. Look at verse 31. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you gonna stone me for? Uh, for giving a guy his sight? The guy who's born blind? Is that why you're stoning me right now? Is that why you're picking that rock up, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Scribe? Is it because the guy who was crippled for 38 years and now he's walking around completely whole? Is that why you're gonna kill me right now? And the Jews answered him in verse 33, it is not for a good work that we're gonna stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself who? God, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And so now we're going deeper, and I am almost done here, but we're going deeper, so remember, we don't check our minds at the door of the church. So you gotta stay with me here, you gotta engage your mind. Remember, we're disciples, we're studying the word, we're going deeper here. Jesus puts on his rabbi hat to reason with these guys. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, it is, I'm sorry, is it not written in your law? I have said, you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, believe the signs, the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Did it help? No, because emotions rule in the day. They're angry, their heads are about to explode. And so verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but inference supernaturally, he escaped from their hands. Okay, so in response to the religious leaders here, Jesus quoted from Psalm 82, this is where we're going deeper, just for a minute here. So in Psalm 82, God said to the unjust judges of Israel, I said you are gods. Okay, so in Psalm 82, the God is calling human judges of Israel gods, Elohim, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you're gonna die and fall like any prince. All right, so Asaph is the author of Psalm 82. And through Asaph, God spoke to the unjust judges of Israel and God was not happy. The first thing you know, need to know, two things. First thing you need to know is that God refers to these human judges as Elohim, gods. Why, why, why? Because they're judges. They have a very lofty position. They are literally um, 
representing God in their, in their career, in their work as judges. They are making moral judgments about people's lives. They are holding the fate of people in their hands. And so God calls them Elohim. The second thing you need to know is they misrepresented God before the people. How? By showing partiality to the wicked and by withholding justice from the fatherless and the weak. Therefore, God's gonna judge them. Okay, so why in the world, Jesus, are you putting on your rabbi hat right now to reason with these guys, going to Psalm 82, and I think John Phillips nails why Jesus quoted this psalm. If it was not blasphemy to give the title Elohim to those who so distantly represented God himself by virtue of their holy office, how was it blasphemy for him, the Son of God, sanctified and set apart by the Father and sent into the world, How's it blasphemy that he says, I'm the son of God? Okay, you see what's going on here? The difference between the unjust judges in Psalm 82 and the judge, capital J, Jesus Christ, is vast as far as the east is from the west. Why? They're unjust, he's just. They're human, he's divine. In their office, the word of God came to them, he's the word of God made flesh. Okay, and so if it's not blasphemy for God to give these sinful humans the term Elohim because of their office, how's it blasphemy for Jesus, this, this is so important, the one the Father sanctified and sent into the world, how's that blasphemy for him to say, I am the Son of God? Now, before I read the last two verses, I gotta show you a very little phrase that has monumental importance. So look at the end of verse 35. The end of verse 35, you may wanna underline this in your Bibles. Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. Woo, this is good. The scripture cannot be broken. Who said that? Jesus. What does that mean specifically? What he's saying is that the Old Testament, there's no New Testament yet, the Old Testament cannot be annulled. The Old Testament cannot be proven wrong. Why is this little phrase of such monumental importance? Here's why. It's because Jesus believed the Old Testament was inerrant and authoritative. Bible believer, here's your ammunition right here for understanding the evidence for why we know the Old Testament right here, according to what Jesus said, is inerrant, without error, and authoritative. The scriptures cannot be broken. You say, well, what about the New Testament? In the New Testament, we're gonna get there, but in John 14, Jesus is gonna tell the apostles that the Holy Spirit is gonna come, and he's going to teach them all things, whatever Jesus has said to them. He's gonna bring it to their remembrance. And then in John 16, Jesus is gonna tell the apostles that the Holy Spirit is gonna guide them into all truth. All right, so what happened? As you continue to read the New Testament, the apostles' teachings became the foundation of the doctrine and the practice of the church. And it was confirmed by many supernatural miracles. The apostles' teaching confirmed by supernatural miracles, written down, and we call it the New Testament. What are you saying, Pastor? What I am saying is that all of this, everybody say all. 
from Genesis to Revelation is the breathed out word of God in the original manuscripts. Now, if you're not convinced, or if you believe that, but I don't know why I believe the Bible's God's word, please go to this website and watch this video. It's called The God Who Speaks. The website is thegodwhospeaks.org. And in the video, really respected evangelical scholars are gonna show you how the Bible came into being. Listen, the average Christian in the pew has no idea how we got this book. But I believe the Bible. Okay, great, I'm glad you believe the Bible, but do you know how we got it? I mean, this is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And do you know where we got it? They're gonna show you. And not just that, they're gonna give you evidence for its inspiration, its inerrancy, its authority. Okay, and so maybe you wanna take a picture of this. Maybe you wanna write this down somewhere. But I'm gonna wait for 10 seconds so you have time. Hold on, Sil, don't take it down yet. It's the God who speaks dot org. Okay, last two verses. And I know some of you are gonna come up to me. What was that website? <laughs> last two verses. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. John never did one miracle. But everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true. Remember, John was the one who heralded the, heralded the coming of the Messiah. And praise the Lord, many believed in him there. Final three questions. Number one, you don't have to answer out loud. Just answer it in your heart, honestly, before the Lord. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Number two, do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins to take the wrath of the Father, to take your sins and his body on the tree, to pay the penalty so you wouldn't have to pay for it in hell, and rose again? And then have you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of your life?